Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, I am so excited. Like, I came happy, but I got just, woo, that was amazing. We can go home after that, right? That was really beautiful. But I'm really excited because I love this passage we're looking at today. Um, I recently candidated at a church to be uh, uh, this, their pastor. Uh, it was here. Don't worry. I feel like that would be a terrible way to... It was here. And uh, during that season, you know, you know, any job interviews, awkward. This passage was just like an anchor for me. And I'm really excited to be able to share that with you this morning. It's a really deep, meaningful passage to me. It's been personally meaningful. Love it. However... Before we look at this passage, we got to clean out the garage a little bit, okay? So uh, this passage, if we just read it, like just read it, I, I'm concerned we would run the risk of misunderstanding what Paul is saying. And I don't want to do this. Now Paul says this, but what he really means is this, and then you're like, okay, trust it. I don't, who are you? Why should I care what you say? And we're, we're lost, right? I don't want to get distracted this morning, okay? So we've got to clean out the garage a little bit. The best way I know how to do that is we're going to watch the Tonight Show together, okay? And I apologize. It's not Johnny Carson Tonight Show. It's Jimmy Fallon Tonight Show. I just apologize about that in advance. You know, we all, yeah, Jimmy laughs at things that aren't funny. We get it. But, but this video perfectly illustrates one of the obstacles that we have to get over to get at the bike in the back of the garage, okay? Like, you know, you've been parking in the driveway for a long time, there's just lots of stuff in the garage, we've gotta get some of that stuff out, okay? So, the comedian's name that Jimmy's talking to, uh, Nate Bargetsy, all right, and just for a few minutes, he's, he's been like joking for a long time about how he's at McDonald's, and he fills up this like, bucket of Coke, and then, you know, he has to drink it to make sure it's okay, and then he fills it up again, and like, he just feels like he's at a low point at McDonald's, and he's just eating a ton of food, and so he's concerned about type 2 diabetes, okay? So that's the setup for it. So here's a human being who's concerned about type 2 diabetes. That's not why we're watching this. Uh, <laughs> welcome to church. Uh, but why we are watching it is because the proposed solution he has for dealing with type 2 diabetes... If you listen carefully, what he says, he's like, oh, I'm concerned I may have type 2 diabetes, but don't worry, I, and he offers a solution. That's part of our problem when it comes to this passage. The same solution he offers is the same way you and I approach change, okay? So listen really carefully for what Nate Bargetsy says is how we should change, okay? I have a podcast, podcast the Nate Land podcast. podcast. Hello, folks, other people listening. But they, it's, uh, I, I told that, I've had my mouth has been dry lately, and uh, I said it on the podcast, and they were like, you probably have type 2 diabetes. <laughs> so I was in that McDonald's, when that guy came up to me, I was Googling how to do, how to do check for diabetes at home, like in there. <laughs> and so I was in the McDonald's, just Googling that. I mean, just, just at a low point, you know? And... <laughs> It's, uh, but I was like, but I had to check it like that. <laughs> you're Googling that while you're getting it, 98 ounce soda. Yeah. Yeah. And type two's the earned kind. That's not, you know, type one, you gotta, you know, that's, you gotta clock in and clock out yeah. every day. <laughs> you you show up, dude. You know, they don't just give it to you, you know, you gotta get after it. <laughs> I found out, but I did. I did an uh, at-home test before I came here. Yeah. Because I wanted you have to like stab your finger, you know. Yeah, sure. And my wife did it, and she did it pretty hard. Like it's I like because I couldn't do it, so I had her do it with the little thing. And I mean, it was just the most blood. I was like, how deep do you want to go, you know? And I am, but I was on. I was like. I'm on like the beginning of pre-diabetic. Like I'm right on the. I'm. I'm a little normal. It's like. It'd be like if there was like a no trespassing, no trespassing sign and you walked in and you heard a gunshot and you're like, you can either just go be normal or you can be like, well, I'm going to go see where that gunshot came from. You know, like, that's where you I'm are. right there with on the edge. Yeah. yeah, with your diabetes. That's how I look at diabetes. But do, no trespassing. Are you, are you cut, cutting back on sugar? Or are you? I don't know, man. I had gummy. <laughs> I do need to. I'm reading a book about it because I do think I'm addicted to sugar. So I eat ice cream every night. And it's so much ice cream. I like ketchup. I like to use enough ketchup that the person next to me has to go, man, that's a lot of ketchup. Like that's, 
are you cutting back? And he said, well, I have a book I'm reading about it. Okay? Now that's hilarious. It's very funny. You know, type 2 diabetes, the urn kind. You got to clock in, clock out. But, and I don't, we don't know how serious Nate is here, but I think what he's scratching at points out an obstacle to how you and I approach change that if we don't kind of wrestle with that obstacle when we come to Titus 2, we're just going to be stuck. All right? So, Nate Bargetsy says he's got type 2 diabetes. Maybe he's on that, like, you know, he's in the danger zone. And he's going to read a book to help. Okay? What are you hoping happens with that book reading, right? Like, you read type 2 diabetes is not fun. It's not comfortable. Like, what, what more information do you need to start transformation. See, that's our problem. We, ever since the Enlightenment, think we just need data. We need the facts and just the facts, and then we'll make, you know, rational, clear-headed decisions to head off to the races. And that is not the, the world Paul thinks in. So Paul is going to say something that sounds like, just get the book. But that's not what Paul is saying, okay? We think, you and I think, we have this problem. We think this is how the Bible works, right? I'm the reader. I just read the Bible, all right? What it says, boom, easy. I can read. Those are words. I read the words. What's the problem, right? The problem is that we're oftentimes blind to the fact that we have a cultural context that we're seeing the Bible through, Okay? Like, remember, a couple weeks ago when we introduced this Titus series, there's a command in many of the New Testament letters that says, kiss each other every time you see each other. And we, we don't do that. And we shouldn't. And go back and listen to it if you're like, what is, what? Go back and listen to it. Don't worry, we'll, we land in a safe place, okay? But let me just illustrate this a little bit, okay? There's this thing called the Apostles' Creed, all right? It's very difficult to, to get all Christians to agree on things. Very difficult. There's a bajillion denominations, you know. There's like, what's that old joke? That there were 10 Christians in a town and 12 churches, right? So it's very difficult to get Christians to agree on things. But nearly all Christians everywhere agree on the Apostles' Creed. Like, yep, we agree with that. All right, that says what we believe. We like it. All right, but if you Google the Apostles' Creed, there's always an asterisk beside this statement we all agree on. Uh, and it goes like this. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, asterisk, communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, the reason there's an asterisk there illustrates the same problems we have when we approach Titus. Okay. When this document was written and they said, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, they meant something that we don't all hear. Okay, I grew up in the greater Boston area. Like, everybody and their dog is Roman Catholic, right? There was no Roman Catholic Church when this was written. So we, from our cultural context, hear Catholic, and we think, that means this. That's not what the original writers meant. The same thing is true with the passage we're about to read today. And let me, let, let me, there's two, we're about to go pogo stick jumping through a minefield, okay? We're going to be okay though, all right? We're going to be okay, all right? The first obstacle is we approach this intellectually. How do I change? I just need to know what change looks like. Once I get a good grasp on it, then I'll start changing. It's not what Paul's talking about. And Paul's proposed solution, though, ends up dealing with things that really are landmines for us. Okay? We're good. Don't worry. It's stretched, but we're not going to the danger zone, okay? What do the Lost Boys, Lord of the Flies, and Sun City, Arizona have in common? The Lost Boys. I guess this works with the 1987 Kiefer Sutherland film or Peter Pan. Whichever one, wherever your brain goes, just go there, all right? So the Lost Boys, all right, it's a group of teenagers with no adults in their life or it's a group of boys who they were sleeping in their cribs, they fell out of their cribs and their nannies weren't looking and they had to live on ne in Never Never Land with no parents. The Lost Boys. Lord of the Flies, which these British boys get shipwrecked on an island and they start self-governing 
chaos ensues. And Sun City, Arizona. What's the common thread that unites all those places? Well, as you may remember, Sun City, Arizona is a retirement community where you have to be 55 years or older to live there. And according to Wikipedia, it's something in the like 79 percentage of, of the town is over 64. What do the Lost Boys, Lord of the Flies, and Sun City, Arizona have in common? They all run the risk. They all run the risk of cutting themselves off from the transformation that Paul is about to describe. They all may not necessarily be happening, but they are at a higher risk for cutting themselves off from one of the most effective and powerful means of transformation in one's life. And that means is intergenerational relationships. Now, you're like, what? Intergenerational relationships? Like, I need to know older people? I need to know younger people? Ah, you know, pastor, there's a lot of things missing in my life. I don't think that's it. All right? You mean to tell me that I need older people in my life? Do you know the older people in my life? They are not super joyful. They are just, if I just open myself up to them, they're just telling me all that I'm doing wrong. Oh, how great my brother is. You know, they, why? I need more of that in my life? You're telling me I need younger people in my life? Do you know the younger people in my life? Do you have any idea what they do with their day? Thing called TikTok. The government doesn't even let TikTok on phones, but these people spend their whole lives on TikTok. What do they have to offer me? And so we cut ourselves off from what Paul describes as one of the most transformational tools we have, intergenerational relationships. Now, we know this intuitively. Intuitively, we know the power of intergenerational relationships. Like we do? Yes. Imagine a school for children and by children and only containing children. Like a school where the administrators are children, all right? The first morning that this school convenes, joy will be just spread through the hallways, right? Oreos and chocolate milk for everyone. Every subject all the time is recess, all right? But about a half hour later, tears, chaos, violence, war. And in a week, you can't go within a city block of that building, all right? We all intuitively know we need each other. But it's so hard. It's so hard to open ourselves up because just like a school, it's, it's natural to have intergenerational relationships, older generations pouring into younger generations, wisdom to unwisdom, right? Just like that's natural. The reason it's natural is because it, it, that's how a family works, right? Like a, the normal rhythm of a family should be an older generation nurtures and cares for a younger generation while being mentored and helped by an even older generation. Parents love kids, and grandparents help out. Therein lies an obstacle for us. Because for all of us, I don't care how great your parents are, we all navigate the disappointments that our families couldn't be everything we needed them to be. For some of us, it's trauma. And for some of us, it's just like, I mean, I wasn't seen, I wasn't heard, I wasn't loved. Now you're telling me that a church is a new family? I have questions. That feels restrictive. I've never really experienced that. Can this even be a plausible reality? What Paul describes for us in Titus 2, 1 through 10 is a community of people, of men and women, pursuing, we'll call it eldering, Pursuing maturity. There's men and women who set the pace. Paul says we make, we make some of them leaders. But don't worry about titles. What Paul is doing is he's setting up these, these postures we're to have. This maturing trajectory that we're supposed to embody and chase and head toward. And we need each other. Older people need younger people. Younger people need older people. And when we cut ourselves off from that, 
we run the risk of Lord of the Flies. But it's really challenging, it's really hard, and that's just the first obstacle. The second obstacle is we have to remind ourselves that Paul didn't have cable. That we know of. Someone said that in the first service. That we know of! Like, okay, so the Apostle Paul, when he was writing in about like, you know, 52 AD, didn't have cable TV. Paul is applying sound doctrine to an ancient culture. Why do I bring up that Paul didn't have cable TV? Paul has never seen Leave It to Beaver. All right? He didn't even see the Brady Bunch. Paul doesn't have the image of family that you and I have. Paul is actually speaking to an ancient context. And here's what you need to understand about that ancient context. A household is not... The, when Paul says household, like he says in Titus 1, 11 maybe, these false teachers are coming in and disrupting whole households. That does not stir up the same images in his mind as it does in your and my mind. A, a nuclear family, right? In the Greco-Roman Empire, a household was... A man was called the pater familia, the head of the house... And he had many wives, polygamy, all right? And then there were many kids. And then also within that household were their slaves, all right? And so we're going to read a passage where Paul is speaking to an ancient culture and a culture that is, has not yet experienced renewal. He's speaking into an ancient culture and there are things that just, whoa, what's Paul saying? Right? He starts talking about men and women, how they relate to each other. And if we read it through our current cultural context, if we don't recognize the cultural context we have, where he says, hey, wives, steward your households well. We're like, what's he saying? What did he just say women are supposed to do? You know, wives, submit to your own husbands. It's like, ah! Like, ah! What's happening? And it keeps going. He then says, slaves, submit to your masters. I knew it. I knew it. The church is just an instrument of oppression in the world. And I get it. I'm not trying to minimize that that's what that sounds like. And I'm wondering if we're open to another perspective. We're reading the Bible through our cultural context. And if we can, for just a moment, try to peek around it and see what is Paul doing in his original context it starts to make sense then why just a couple hundred years later, Augustine, who was a famous bishop, famous pastor, takes a bunch of his church, like, so takes a bunch of his church members and they go head out to a slave ship and they free slaves. Or why in the 17th and 18th century, men and women became abolitionists. Like, why did that happen? Because Paul had something else in mind and he's facing a problem in a way that's far different than you and I would face it. And he's inviting people on a trajectory toward beauty in the midst of brokenness. And see, that's the problem with reading the book. If we have this approach to change that says, oh, I just got to read the book. Well, I don't quite yet feel comfortable to deal with type 2 diabetes. I need more information. I need to read the book. Paul's saying, no, no, no. The best example of that is someone who says, hey, come with me. Come alongside me. I'll help you. We'll learn together. Right? Not someone, not an older generation saying, well, you know why you have type 2 diabetes? Because when you were a kid, you went to this school and all they had were Oreos and chocolate milk. Kids in school these days. Right? No, not, that's not eldering. All right? Eldering comes alongside. Says, hey, here's something beautiful. Let's head over there together. It's not just a one-way street, though. Paul is encouraging younger people to also speak into the lives of older people. Whew. That's awkward, right? Have you ever corrected someone who could be your dad or your mom or your grandmother? It's awkward. But Paul's not inviting us to be busybodies. Paul's inviting us to be a family. People who haven't really experienced the families that have been nurturing and safe and, and protected them, he's explaining, hey, let's build a new family. And what I believe he's saying is disinterested people, when they see that, they're like, I've never seen that. What is this? And we start to get the attention of our neighbors. Yesterday, many of us, uh, Julie mentioned we were in a, a leadership training session, and it, did you know, did you know, within a one-mile radius of this spot right here, within a one-mile radius, 
There are 9,600 people who are not in any meaningful way connected to a faith community. There are not 90, please, I'm going to say that a little clearer. There are not 9,600 people within a one mile radius, more than that. There's 9,600 people who are not connected to a faith community. And what we're saying is, why would they? Have we given them a vision for a beautiful life? of what life with Jesus can be. And we say, hey, does your family disappoint you? Well, we sure aren't perfect, but here's what we're pursuing together. That's the vision Paul's giving to Titus. He's saying, hey, disinterested people will become interested when we love each other across generational lines, when we become this family for people who haven't experienced family. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 10. Titus 2, 1 through 10. And if, you, uh, if you're able, please stand with me as we read scripture. If you don't have a Bible, there's these maroon seatback Bibles un, uh, under the seats. It's on page 1816. And uh, you can take that with you. We love seeing those empty. We had a film, so take that with you. All right, here we go. Titus 2, 1 through 10. You, however, must teach what's appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be uh, reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderous or addicted to much wine, but to teach what's good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, uh, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In teaching, show integrity and seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way... They will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. This is the word of the Lord. Oh God, we need help this morning. God, the tensions that exist in families, the tensions that exist as men and women relate to each other, the tensions that have existed when we think about slavery and the evil that that is, God, God help us to see what it is you're doing in this passage. What the invitation is. The invitation is that we would, we would attend to our character, that we'd be a, a people in the world who change the trajectory of those around us toward shalom. Father, I ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. I told you this passage is a little bit like being on a pogo stick in a minefield. There's a lot here. We're going to unpack it. The first thing we got to unpack, though, is verse 1. Paul tells Titus, but you, in verse 1. So he's, he, remember last week, Luke's saying, hey, there's like narcissistic, toxic people. They've snuck into the church. They're upsetting folks. They're upsetting whole households. But what does Titus do? He says, but you teach sound doctrine. When we hear sound doctrine, when I hear sound doctrine, my mind goes to, yeah, like teach things that line up with the Bible, right? Sound doctrine. It's not what Paul means. All right? That's not what Paul means. Uh, just like you and I read a translation of the Bible, uh, the Bible that they had in those days, uh, the, the Old Testament, that was translated into Greek, okay? And so the Greek New Testament uses a word that's used a lot in the Greek Old Testament, and it's that word for sound. So the blue ring represents every time that that word sound is used uh, in the Hebrew Bible, it's used to translate shalom. That's about 92%. So 92% of the time when this word is used, it means shalom. Here's what Paul is saying. There's people, they snuck into your church. They're not pursuing the maturing process. And for God's sake, don't let them lead us. All right, these people are toxic. They cannot lead us. They need, we want them to be healthy. They can participate in like the growth process, but don't let them set the pace. All right, they're destroying whole households. Titus, on the other hand, you need to focus on your teaching being teaching that creates shalom, that creates wholeness, that creates peace, that brings broken things back together. How do we know that that's what he's saying? Well, our best guess says that because if Paul was just talking about make sure your teaching lines up with the Bible, we'd expect him to say things like this. 
teach things that fit with sound doctrine. You got to talk about the deity of Christ. All right, you got to talk about the authority of Scripture. You got to talk about uh, uh, the, the Trinity. All right, the, you need to teach sound doctrine. He doesn't say that though. He says, teach sound doctrine. Teach older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. He's talking about our way of being in the world. He's saying, teach posture. Teach, teach these people about, to control their appetite. That's eldering. That's maturing. See, for most of us, right, just give me the book. All right, just give me the facts. Give me the data. But we get something better than that. We get, we get presence. Teach us a way of being in the world so that we can experience God. We call that maturing. And, and there are, that's what we're gathered together to do, to experience that process of transformation where what's been done for us by Jesus gets worked out into reality. We become who God already says we are. And we grow into that reality. And, and Paul paints a picture for what it looks like. And notice, in a world, in a world that was dominated by men, the pater familia, Paul speaks to men and women. This is not a good old boys club. The church of Jesus Christ is a place where men and women pursue this maturing process together. Some of them become leaders and set the pace for us. But this is not, he doesn't say, okay, teach sound doctrine. Tell all the men to do this, and then just, we'll be good. It, we need engagement from everybody. We need everybody pursuing. This is a family. This ain't going to be a lopsided table. All right? We need to function together as a body. That, just saying that, brings up a lot of feelings. Like, man, men and women have not necessarily been nailing getting along since the Garden of Eden. All right? And different generations have different ways to express this, right? In my parents' generation, I remember they had this book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, right? And that, this, I don't even, whatever. But I don't, I don't know anything about that book, so I'm not endorsing it, or if that's, I have no idea. I just remember seeing that sleeve on the shelf. But it's scratching at, it's ever since sin entered the world, man, there have been, there's been hurt, there's been abuse, there's been tension. There's been misunderstandings. I mean, I mean, just everything. I mean, like, just our cultural moment right now. It's like, how are men and women getting along? Is this going well? No. Yeah. <laughs> Says a man. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm a man too. I'm not trying to, don't shame and guilt on that. It's just an open door. Um, no, I, we don't, there, there's room for improvement, I would say. And Paul is saying, if we're going to be this new family, we've got to, this is where we're putting our attention. We've got to say, hey, there, there's thunder in paradise. What does it look like for men and women to function, to lead, to serve together? What does it look like for these elders to elder in a community and Paul sets up four things. He's like, hey, look, I know I'm speaking to, to in a world that is way different than our... Like Paul's saying this, hey, this world where there's polygamy, which brings into it all different types of abuses, where there's slavery, the way that that world can experience hope and transformation is not through a set of facts. The gospel isn't God sent us some notes. It's he himself came, embodied, a, a person, a real person, came and embodied our planet. And we, as people now, can pursue relationships because those relationships are, have the greatest means of transformation that we could ever experience. The lead singer of LCD Sound System says it's really easy to protest. It's really easy to point out what's not going well, but the greatest way to protest is to build something beautiful. That's what Paul's inviting us toward. He's saying, look, look what I see. Look who you are and what I see you can become. You can have elders in your community, men and women who do what? Look with me at verse 2. Teach older men to be temperate. Temperate. That's a, that's a, a Greco-Roman virtue. When we hear temperate, we think like a women's temperance movement that had to do with alcohol. It's not what that word means in the Greco-Roman world. Temperance means avoiding extremes. 
Avoid. Man, if we need people to avoid extremes, right? Just my neighborhood, I guess. But like, it's like if everything's a 10, pretty soon nothing's a 10, right? If everything is the worst thing ever, if everything is this is the greatest evil, this and that. But you know what the biggest problem in the world today is? Republicans. You know what the biggest problem in the world today is? Socialism, right? If everything is the biggest problem, we, woo, that's not the invitation. Temperance. All right, the invitation is as we get older, the roller coaster levels out a little bit. We're not always caught off guard by everything that happens to us. Not everything is just the biggest deal in the world. And that, that leads into the next thing he invites us to be into. Self-controlled. The language, the wording there, self-controlled, it actually, it, it literally means thoughtful. Right? So when, when our kids come to us and say, you know what, mom and dad? You were never there for me. You know what? I needed you to be this, and you weren't that. That really hurt me. That really wounded me. Your fault. The not self-controlled response is, are you kidding me? Do you know how many soccer practices I sat through? I wiped your butt. Has anybody in your life ever done that for you? I did this. I did that. I did that. That's not eldering. Thoughtful. What if the older folks among us, the elders in our community, we knew we could come to them with all the mess that's us and say, hey, here's my concerns. And we knew we were going to get a person who says, okay, I'm not going to fly off the rails here. I hear what you're saying. Let me get more understanding. Tell me more about this. Right? That, that takes, we don't wake up like that. That takes energy. That takes effort. I was recently talking to a friend. Uh, he spent time with a family member who has um, dementia. And it was a reminder to my friend of like, man, I, I really need to keep participating in this, in this eldering, in this maturing process because one day I may just leak all over people and the character that's just been up, you know, pimped up inside and I've just been keeping my thoughts to myself, I lose that filter. The floodgates open and I just tell everybody what I'm really like. I'm not saying that's what dementia is. If, if grandma was unkind, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not a doctor. Don't come to me for medical advice. But we all leak. All of us leak, and we all run the risk of just like dumping on people. The eldering process says we're headed to a place where we want to be life-giving, giving shalom, bringing shalom to people we don't always understand. Paul, what Paul's talking about here is our posture. How, how are we in the world? Are we people who bring shalom? And this is really challenging. All right, this is like, you know, sometimes I throw applications out there where I'm like, just try it, all right? This one, write it down, and if you've got to work your way toward it, that's fine, all right? But if you want to know, am I someone who brings shalom in the world, right? Uh, not a great place to start is just by asking yourself, am I someone who brings shalom in the world? Here's what, you're going to have one or two extremes, like, no, I'm the worst ever, or I think I'm okay, right? You're, you're not going to really, it's hard to see yourself clearly. So if you want to know, like, hey, am I, where am I in this eldering process? This is a surefire way to find out. Find someone safe. We're not talking about going to, like, coworkers who are, like, out to get your job. Find someone safe, a friend, and just say, hey, how do you experience me? How do you experience me? Am I thoughtful? You know, have you been in a situation where you've come to me needing help, and I was unable to sit in just the discomfort that that created, and I just spilled all over you? Or was I thoughtful? How do you experience me? Oof, that's hard. That's challenging. We don't, we work our way to it. But again, find safe people to ask. We're not talking about like, okay, this is a great way for me to love my enemies. Hey, enemy! We don't get along. Do you experience me? How do you experience me? No, no, no. Find a safe person and just ask how they experience you. Because Paul's trying to get us to work toward our posture. He's saying, look, the island of Crete, they've never had a Christian witness here before. And we talked about it. This place is, is a mess. These people are messy. These households are messy. 
We need to be people who are pursuing shalom in our own lives. Please don't misunderstand me. Please don't misunderstand me. Paul is not saying sound doctrine, like as in like good theology, doesn't matter. Okay? On my nightstand at home is the Journal of Evangelical Theological Society. Okay? We love sound doctrine around here. We love going deep. We love, 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 love. Okay? So please don't fill my inbox tomorrow with, you said doctrine doesn't matter. It's like, I, I, I hope I'm not saying that. Okay? Because look, look with me at verse... Uh, in, at verse 7, Paul says this to Titus. In everything set them, the younger men, an example by doing what is good. In your teaching show integrity and seriousness, then verse 8, and soundness of speech. That's a different word for soundness, and it refers to making sure what you say is accurate. So Paul absolutely wants Titus to teach truth. But we don't necessarily start with truth. We start with the relationship right? The younger generation doesn't know what it doesn't know. And if we start with, hey, here's all you don't know. Do you know what filter that gets put through? Here it is again. Somebody thinks they know everything because they've fought a war overseas just telling me what's up, right? It, it just, boom. But if we move toward people, they will move toward us. That's, I mean, they may not, but that's the only hope we have that anyone will move back towards. If they know we care, if our posture is one of saying, hey, I want to create shalom in your life. I have more days behind me than ahead of me. And you know what? I have experienced beauty. I've seen things. But you don't care about any of that until you know I care about you. That's asking a lot of a, of a former generation. It is. It's asking a lot to say, hey, I'm going to risk being vulnerable here. If I'm being honest, I'm pretty insecure, right? Do these people care anything about what I have to say? You know, I, I never, never got a million followers on Twitter. You know, I never had a blue check by my Instagram profile. I don't even really know what Instagram is, right? Do they even care what I think? I don't know, but I'm going to just come alongside. I'm going to move toward these people. When we do that, our disinterested neighbors, those 9,600 people who are disconnected from a faith community, might go, what? What's going on there? I've never seen anything like that. And when younger people, when younger people are open and receptive, and when younger people also move back and offer correction, look, this is awkward, okay? I didn't, I just deliver the mail, okay? I don't write it, all right? Look with me at Titus 2.1 again. Here's what he says to Titus. You, however, speak, um, teach what's appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach older men. Okay? That is the younger generation speaking into the older generation's life. All right? Paul is envisioning a community, a family, where correction, we don't just get a free pass because of age. Like, hey, I'm older, I get to say everything here. We all, we all have open hands. What's the correction I need? Where am I missing this? And that's really tricky. That takes a lot of vulnerability. And when we do that, we're acting like elders. We're mature. We're, we're on this process. I've met a lot of curmudgeonly people in my day. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm not saying this to be pandering. Many of them in their 20s. A lot of them in their 20s, actually. All right? Age doesn't necessarily soften us. Vulnerability softens us. Taking those steps toward others, saying, I might be rejected here, but that family Paul's talking about, man, I just, these people need to experience it. They don't get it. They haven't, they haven't, they haven't had someone. Look at the word he uses again. He's talking about to younger men, but he says this uh, in verse 6 encourage the younger men to be self-controlled in verse 6. Encourage. The word literally means call alongside. Right? Not from the top. Hey, you know what's wrong with you down there? You stuck in that hole? Well, why'd you get in a hole? No, it's come alongside somebody. Right? And, and look, at, look at what it says in verse 3 about how we can do that. Teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live not to be slanderers. Now again, 
We've got to put this through the filter of our own cultural context. The word for slanderer is where we get the word devil. So the word devil literally means slanderer, okay? So Paul's saying, don't, hey women, don't be devils, okay? And we're like, what? Who is this guy, right? Like, is this like our weird uncle? Like, this guy has no filter. Like, what's wrong with you, Paul? That's, again, we're putting it through our own cultural context. What Paul is saying is this. Hey, older women, it's really easy to look into people's lives and point out what's not going well. To say, oh, you're not doing this. Oh, you're not doing that. Hey, you know what? The reason your kids are out of control is because you let them walk all over you, right? Pointing those things out. Rather, what he's saying, the posture we should have, verse 6, encourage Come alongside, move toward, eldering. We can, we can get lost in this of like thinking about, hey, who's he talking to and what? But the posture about elders that he's calling us toward is elders aren't people who are really good at pointing out what's wrong. As human beings, we're wired to point out what's wrong. All right? it's, part, it's a survival skill, right? If you're driving and you get a flat tire and you're like, well, the radio works, that doesn't help, all right? But if you're in a relationship and you're always like, that's going wrong, that's going wrong, that's going wrong, that's going wrong, more and more starts to go wrong. And the more you point it out, the more we, but if you're like, hey, I'm going to encourage. That's what Paul's doing. Hey, there's a really beautiful park over there. That's where we're walking. That's where we're headed. That's, that's the goal. And we have to remember, he's speaking to people who haven't experienced this. He's speaking to households where there's slavery in this household. And again, just being honest, this creates kind of a crisis of faith, right? I came from a denomination that was like, the Bible teaches slavery's okay. And here are the verses. And we just go, uh, no, it doesn't. I don't know why, and I don't agree, but I'm moving away from these folks. So I, let me just try to, as clearly and as quickly as I can, get at verse 10 what he's saying, all right? We have to recognize a couple things about slavery in the house. These are, he's speaking to households that were experiencing, they hadn't experienced renewal yet. All right? So this is new. This is, this is like the gospel. Remember, we live in a post-Christian society. We live in a world where so much has been influenced by faith. Not so here. All right? And in the Greco-Roman world, slavery was like electricity. It just made everything run. And so if Christians were to come on the scenes and say, hey, let's stop slavery, it would have been squashed by the Roman Empire instantaneously. But what Paul does is Paul plays the long game. He says this, let's create a trajectory, let's create an environment where people don't want to enslave other people. We gave a sermon about this with the book of Philemon. But he's talking about, hey, let's say this new creation humanity starts treating each other like new creation humanity. And in Philemon, a slave runs away and comes back. Paul sends him back to his owner. And he says, don't receive him as a slave. Receive him as a brother. That sets the posture. All right? So the posture is, this person in my house is unequal to me. All right? Day one, you're like, man, I see their humanity. Day two, you're like, man... I ought to treat this person a little better. I wouldn't want to be treated like that. Day three, you're like, I think I should pay this person. I don't like working for free. I'm going to pay this person. Day four, you're like, I don't think slavery's okay. And that's why Augustine, one of the most popular pastors in North Africa, takes his church and they break into Roman slave ships and they set people free. It wasn't because he's like ignoring the Bible. The Bible set him on a trajectory that says, hey, we're not doing this. God, but God works with people as he finds them and says, it's, 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 we wrestle with that. And just a three-minute talk on it isn't going to fix it. But what God is saying is, hey, I'm going I'm to meet you where you are, and we're going to walk toward redemption together. That's what he's doing with families. Because here's the thing. The, the whole idea about how, oh, let's read a book, and then we'll get change. You're never going to change if that's your approach. When everything gets, when, it, you know, when I get this sunk in enough, then I'll start learning. Like, grip it and rip it, baby. That's what Paul's saying, all right? I just learned that this weekend. Do you guys know that? If, if, you're, if you're a golfer, 
grip it and rip it, all right? But if you're not a golfer, though, there's so many techniques, right? You got to like, where's my, where are my hips? Where's my shoulder? How my, my thumb? And then, okay, how to swing back? And don't do the Charles Barkley thing. And you can just get paralyzed by all the information about how to swing a golf club. But what, as the great golfers say, just grip it and rip it, baby. All right? Just hold on tight and hit that ball as hard as you can. That's what Paul's saying transformation is. Look, you're not going to find an elder around you who's like nailing it. Grip it and rip it, baby. Just find somebody and say, hey, can we get coffee? My kids are crazy. You seem to like your kids. Tell me about that. Grip it and rip it. That's Paul's approach to change. The water will never be the perfect temperature. Just jump in. All right? That's how it's always been. Compass Church will not get perfectly straightened out and then boom, watch this explosion of growth. We got to grip it and rip it, baby. We got to say, hey, this is where we are. This is what it looks like. Let's pursue growth. Let's pursue eldering together. But here's the amazing thing. In the front of my Bible... I have, a, this is, I have a picture of Superman, okay? It's kind of embarrassing, but I have a picture of Superman. And it's a reminder that there's only one Superman. There's only one Superman. It's not me. Because here's the thing. Elders are going to disappoint you. They're going to let you down. And if we think, oh man, you know what's been missing in my life? I just need to get the right ratio of like younger people and older people in my life. And then boom, I'm not going to suffer anymore. And I'm going to have all the answers. And it's going to be great. No. You're going to get disappointed again. And in the midst of that disappointment, beauty can emerge. Philip Yancey just wrote uh, his memoirs. So Philip Yancey, there's a lot of Christian writers out there in Christian books. Some of those Christian writers are actually writers. Uh, and Philip Yancey is one of those people. Uh, great writer. Uh, and he wrote his memoirs. And, and he grew up in Atlanta and he tells the story about the church that he grew up in. The church he grew up at, he was in the, during the civil rights movement, uh, the church was extremely segregated. There was actually a, a point in the church, in Yancey's own childhood, where he remembers that um, deacons would stand at the door with a placard, a little, a little sign, and every time they'd see an African-American come in through the doors, they'd hand them the sign, and this is what the sign said, we know you're not a sincere worshiper, you're a troublemaker, you're not part of the family of God, and you're not welcome here. That just, that's hard to read. And those are elders in the church, not behaving like elders. Well, over time, the church softened, all right? And they, they started letting people in through the door. They wouldn't let them become members. There was one young man who was a student at a Bible college down the street. And he loved this church. He's like, man, they really teach the Bible here. They get it. This is great. So he started, he'd been coming there for a few months, and he said, I want to be a member. So he, he threw his name in to the, to the elders of the church. He said, hey, can I be a member here? And the elders, or the deacons, they wrestled over it, and they thought about it, and they came back, they slammed the gavel down, and they said, no. Well, that young man left that church and went on to another church. And he didn't tell that story, but that young man's name is Dr. Tony Evans. Many of you may know him uh, from the radio, The Urban Alternative. He uh, pastors a church in Dallas that has about 9,500 people. And it's a punch in the gut, right? Oh. Elders not behaving like elders. A church being so inconsistent with who it claims to be. It's devastating. But beauty emerges out of that when a young man behaves like an elder. When a young man pursues shalom, when it's not being offered back. We, we as a church family, the invitation for us is to say, we're never going to get that ideal scenario where everything just lines up and boom, we're off for growth. We can say right now, this is who we are. This is where we are. Grip it and rip it, baby. And that's, that's, what, that's what the invitation is. And we're going to see beauty emerge when we, as a, as a family, a new family, people from disappointing families can experience love and nurturing across generational lines. Disinterested people will start to get their attention. And some of those 9,600 people within a one-mile radius of us may be like, what is this all about? 
when we pursue shalom together. We're going to respond to that in just a second, but I got to dip into next week's passage just a second. We're able to do this not because we're so awesome, but if you look at verse 11, Paul gives the foundation that this is all built on. Titus 2 verse 11, 4, because you can be this new family, Tony Evans can pursue shalom because the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Grace. Unmerited favor. Unmerited. We don't deserve it. This came to us as a gift. We receive it. Favor. What does it mean to be the favored child? Mom and dad like you more than the other kids. Favored. God delights in us. He likes you. He loves you. You are a joy. He likes being around you. We don't deserve it. That's what we get. And that's the gas in our tank that fuels this new family in a very messy cultural moment. We're going to respond in just a moment by taking communion together. We're going to say, hey, let's have a family meal. We think it's the only appropriate way to respond. Father, Father, as we wrestle with our own stories, as we wrestle with our own identity, as we wrestle with questions we have, God, I pray that we'd be people who pursue sound doctrine, people who pursue shalom. And God, I pray that, I pray for the 9,600 people within a one-mile radius of us. God, I pray that, that we would not pray that they would come to us, but that we would go to them. That we would be people who say, hey, we want you to experience what we're experiencing here, the love of a family. God, we ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.